0: It's July 28, 1914. The rains of World War I begin to fall
1: upon Europe. German Latter-day Saint Paul Schwartz leaves his family and branch to serve in the Kaiser's army. Paul's grandson, Edgar Wolferts, joins us to share his grandfather's story of the challenges facing the faithful German saints with war all about them. And now, Chapter 12, This Terrible War. This is Saints, Volume 3, The Podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm James Perry.
2: And I'm Shailen Bach.
1: Our guest today is Edgar Wolfitz. His maternal grandparents are Paul
2: and Helena Schwartz.
1: Brother Wolfertz does historical research and has for a number of years been working on a historical account of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints in the area where he, his parents, and grandparents used to live in Germany. Edgar, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Well, Edgar, I think our listeners would be interested to know a little bit more about who you are and how exactly you are related to Paul. So would you mind helping our readers out and giving us a bit more of an insight into who you are?
0: I would be glad to. I was born and raised in Germany, in Wuppertal, Germany. The city of Baumann and Elberfeld were combined in 1929 to form the city of Wuppertal. In 1959, my family and I immigrated to Salt Lake City. Later I served a mission in the Netherlands. Attended Brigham Young University and got degrees in uh, German literature. I've been retired since 2006. Fantastic.
1: We're glad you're here. And family relationships can sometimes be a little complicated when thinking about relations and descendants and so on. But would you mind explaining how you're related to Paul Schwartz?
0: Yeah, Johann Otto Paul Schwartz is my maternal grandfather. That means my mother, Johanna Elizabeth Schwartz, was his second youngest daughter.
2: Well, I think with having both James and Edgar with us today, it's a great opportunity to have a European perspective on the war. So we have some questions about that that we'll ask both of you. The first one we'll ask Edgar, in what state was the church in Europe when the war broke out?
0: Well, I would say that the church in Germany, which functioned under the presidency of the Swiss and German mission president was doing very well. There were, of course, concerns about the political developments in Germany and in Europe per se. And so some measures had been taken to put more and more responsibility on the local priesthood leadership in Germany. As far as people actually anticipating the war in Germany a lot of them actually didn't. It came to my understanding as sort of a surprise. And of course, the trigger to that was the murder of the crown prince of Austria and his wife in Sarajevo on the 28th of June, I believe.
2: James, how did the church there respond to the war?
1: Well, obviously, the threat of war posed a hazard to members and to the efforts of the church. In certain areas where the conflict was significant, for example, in France, in Belgium, in Germany, in certain areas, there was an evacuation of missionaries who were taken away from the conflict area. So, Missionaries serving in France were taken back to England. So as a result of the outbreak of the war, church leaders tried to maintain a steady and calming influence on the members, they tried to avoid getting drawn into the political and the arguments for or against the conflict. And in many ways, the church was able to carry on, at least in the initial stages of the war. Many congregations enjoyed the benefits of local leaders, and at this point, the church in Germany was doing well. church in the British Isles, for example, was doing well, considering it's gone through some considerable persecution in the years before the war. But throughout the war, as men either were volunteering to go and fight, or as men were drafted to or conscripted, there was a weakening of the congregations. And that's when the church had to take steps to try and address that challenge.
2: So, James, you shared with us how the church responded to the war in some of those ways that they responded. What are some ways that we know of that Latter day Saints in Europe, how did they respond to the war?
1: That's a great question because individual members differed in the way that they approached the war. There was, of course, a general sentiment of supporting their country. There were difficult issues, for example, in the opening elements of the war, as German Latter day Saints died in the battles their names were published in the Millennial Star, which was the British mission publication, until eventually people started to object when British members were caught up in the fighting and some of them started to lose their life. And People had a real issue because there was this brotherhood, this shared membership of the Lord's kingdom, but there was also then this national responsibility, this national duty. And there were some who, at the outbreak of war, immediately signed up. There were others who were hesitant, who were later conscripted. And there were also some Latter-day Saint conscientious objectors. And so there was a real spectrum. But generally speaking, Latter-day Saint men saw it as their duty. Now, for the sisters, of course, this was a particular difficulty because they were losing their husbands or sons to go away and, and to fight which meant that they didn't necessarily have the leadership locally from the priesthood because in some congregations we know there was maybe just one elderly man left behind. And so we've got accounts of the sisters gathering for their meetings, but when they had no priesthood members there, they didn't do the sacrament, but they still gathered together and they sang hymns and they shared their testimonies to one another. So obviously Latter-day Saints were kind of horrified As were many people about the fact that there was a war taking place, but people responded in accordance with their own conscience and were able to find a way to maintain their faith while supporting the war effort in their own ways.
2: Thank you for sharing that information. James, what are some of the challenges of selecting stories for inclusion in saints, especially when there are so many to choose from across so many countries?
1: Well, wars are. Periods of exception. So, in most societies, we're not in a perpetual state of war. They occur irregularly. Sadly, in the 20th century, we've got two pretty significant worldwide affairs. But of course, it's in these moments of exception that particularly harrowing or particularly uplifting experiences are found. When people are faced with challenges, when they're faced with difficulties, we see at times courage. At other times, fear or doubt emerge. And so because it's a moment of exception, it stands out from perhaps the more peaceful times that people enjoy as, as a member of the church, because there are so many disruptions. So when it comes to this First World War, also known as the Great War, and again with the Second World War, It was rather difficult because there are just so many accounts of latter-day saints being caught up and these aren't necessarily huge accounts but it affected everybody it affected every latter-day saint and so there's a story to be told in many places the difficulty we have is that we have latter-day saints on both sides of the conflict we have german latter-day saints we've got british latter-day saints we have american latter-day saints canadian latter-day saints And it was a case of, how do we find a balance? Although the church has these strong American roots, we've got thousands of German Latter-day Saints who are having to have this same experience. And that is why we wanted to try and give a perspective of Latter-day Saints on both sides of the conflict. And that meant trying to make some really hard decisions about who to choose out of that. But as part of the decision-making process, we had to take a look at not just what stories are readily available, but what kinds of stories do we want to have. We could have easily picked an American or a Canadian soldier and used their story, but in this case, we wanted to try and be somewhat more balanced and more grounded in Europe.
2: Thanks so much, James. Well, Edgar, We mentioned in the introduction, and you shared a little bit with us, how you are related to Paul Schwartz. We would love to hear more about him and his relationship with the church.
0: My uh, maternal grandfather, Paul Schwartz, was uh, born in 1876 in the province of Posen, Prussia, which is now part of Poland. Around age 13, his mother and his siblings moved to the city of Haune in Western Germany, where he found eventually work as a postman. In 1902, he was contacted by missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, whose names were Alvin C. Crosby and Heber Quincy Hale. They taught him the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, and he accepted and was convinced about the truthfulness of the church and was baptized in May of 1902. Thereafter, he served in the Sunday school and occasionally taught Bible class. And then in 1903, Elder Thomas McKay, the brother of David O. McKay, the later president of the church, conferred the Melchizedek Priesthood on him and ordained him to the office of elder. He then served as a counselor in the Hauna branch presidency, and later as its president. Somehow, the information that he became president of the branch got into the newspapers, where they then spoke of a Mormon priest who was about in the city of Hauna. The postmaster, shortly thereafter, heard about it and called my grandfather into his office and gave him the following ultimatum. He said, Paul, you can either disassociate yourself completely from the Mormons, and stay on as a postman here in Herne, or we'll send you to a remote area in Germany where there are no Mormons. It didn't take any time for my grandfather to respond. He felt absolutely convinced that the Lord had called him to that calling and that he was there to sustain and support the members in the Herne branch. Lastly, he was, uh, he, well, I think he quit, then found a job in one of the coal mines in Herne, working some 2,000 feet below the surface. Quite the change. It was in 1904 that he found work in Elberfeld, which is a city about 35 miles south of Herne, with the Singer Sewing Company as a bill collector and uh, as a salesperson. And so consequently, he moved to Elberfeld, where he also married his wife, Helena Schoeneweis Schwartz. He was uh, calm, thoughtful, and she was a spitfire and had a tremendous missionary spirit and was very, very supportive. They had a great marriage. Around 1907, he moved to the city of Bauman, which is a neighboring town, which joined with the city of Eberfeld in 1929 to become the city of Uppertown. Within a short while, they had additional converts. They were meeting in my grandparents' home in Bauman, and then Paul found a meeting hall and the Ewerfeld members then began to join with the Barman members and it became the Barman branch. And that was the situation until the war started on August 1, 1914.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that, Edgar. Well, I know that in the British Isles, the church and the members of the church had to adapt to the new circumstances that they found themselves in they didn't have all of the support from North American missionaries that they had previously. There were some, but severely reduced. But of course, the Latter-day Saint men and women were in a wartime situation. But they did keep the church going. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners about some of the things that the saints in Germany did to keep things going.
0: Yes, I suppose that some of the things they did would match what was happening in England. There are several important things. One, just when the war broke out, President Valentine, who was at that time the president of the Swiss and German mission, traveled into Germany and visited every conference in that country and released all the missionaries. And gave them enough funds so that they could come to Liverpool, England, and leave from there to their various destinations across the Atlantic. Having done so, where it was necessary, he then set apart branch presidents to take over from the vacant positions that a missionary branch president may have left behind. These branch presidents were directly responsible to the mission president contact between these branch presidents and President Valentine was done in writing. Church pamphlets played a very important role because you didn't have very experienced missionaries anymore. And so, in time, local sisters were called as branch missionaries, and the pamphlets were very helpful to them in spreading the gospel. The Shtown became a very important aspect. The Shtown is the equivalent of the Millennial Star in England, which informed members through articles on doctrine regarding church publications, conference talks, guidelines for callings, how to plan large meetings like Sunday School conferences, and so on. The role of the Sunday School became more central, and so did the Relief Society. There were only nine Relief Societies in the mission when the Valentine started out. And by the time they left in 1916, there were 18, so it doubled. Now, the challenge, of course, was that all capable men eventually ended up in the war. And so, like you said earlier, there was maybe an elderly gentleman that would take over. And that was the case in the Bauman branch. My grandfather was called to war in September of 1915. And an elderly gentleman by the name of Julius von Bauer was uh, called to fill his place. The problem was that he resided in a different city. And often the military claimed the trains for military personnel only. So many times, Brother von Bauer could not come to Baumann. And that necessitated in time that a change be made, and President Valentine called my grandmother, who had been the secretary in the branch and the Relief Society president, as the president of the branch, functioning under the direction of Julius von Bauer. this was not for a long time, and I think it happened around 1917 for a number of months when that took place. So those were some of the things that helped them compensate for the lack of the missionaries. But there was also in most branches, a tremendous sense of unity, realizing the need to support and strengthen each other in the church.
1: Absolutely, and I think we see that in the stories within this chapter and the previous chapter. We provide the perspective of Paul Schwartz, you know, this German infantryman, but then we also have Latter-day Saint women in the British Isles trying to keep things going on the home front. We're in Belgium with the, the saints there. The common thread is this unity of them working together. And I think you're right. I think despite the hardships, despite the war, there is an increased sense of unity, but there are also successes. And I know in the British Isles, as another example, there was growth. There were relief societies organized. There were new branches eventually were kind of brought about as a result of the efforts of Latter-day Saint women who were called as missionaries. And here we have. Isabella Blake, who as a local leader is responding to the call to serve in a new way as a local missionary. And we see and know that they had just as much success as the full-time North American missionaries. And to see how the church was able to grow during the conflict, despite all of these things, I think is a testament to their faith and their commitment both to the Lord and to the church. And that's true, I think, as you've said, of the saints in Germany, and the same true in the British Isles and and probably elsewhere.
2: Edgar, will you tell us a little bit more about Helena Schwartz and the challenges that she was facing during this time?
0: I would be glad to. I think my maternal grandmother's first concern when her husband Paul was called up into the war was, how do I feed my family? A common soldier's pay was simply not enough. And the complication was that she had to work, but at the same time, she had five children. The oldest was 10, and the youngest was 14 months, which meant that the 10-year-old son and 8-year-old daughter were responsible to take care of their younger siblings. I can hardly imagine what that must have been like. I suppose that when she found a job in Everfeld as a seamstress, that perhaps she didn't work every day. Otherwise, I wouldn't know how she would have managed. The other concern, of course, was the branch itself. Uh, she was a branch secretary. And as I mentioned, uh, a lot of times, brother from Bauer was unable to come. And so she would have to step in and keep the meeting going. Another complication that set in was that the church's relief fund did not make it into Germany. Now, the first presidency, December of 1914, had asked the American membership to collect monies to be sent and dispersed among the British and German and French Italian saints. But the difficulty was, of course, that once the war got on their way, the borders were closed. And to my knowledge, only in March of 1915, did some of the fund reach President Valentine from the European mission president, which he then dispersed among the branches in Germany, giving each branch president approximately 100 marks. But I think that's the only aid that was able to get through during the wartime. Thank
1: you for that, Edgar. It's obviously sad to know that it was more difficult for these relief funds, this aid to reach the saints in Germany, I suppose the limitations and impact of the war, no doubt, played a part in that. But Helena Schwartz, the difficulty she's facing, I'm sure was true of many other German Latter-day Saints. And in the British Isles, as I'm sure happened in Germany, The sisters also had this desire to help the war effort, and we have accounts of egg Sundays where the sisters would collect the eggs from their chickens on a Sunday, and collectively they would then donate them to the local hospital as a way of giving up something that they need to help the local hospitals that were trying to feed the patients that they had.
0: If I may add something, Please, yes. The challenge, of course, for the saints in Germany was the embargo of the British Navy. So that by 1917, the shelves in the German grocery stores were getting empty and also fuel was no longer available. There were quite a number of Sundays when meetings had to be canceled because it was simply too cold. And the added difficulty was the hours one had to spend standing in line to get a little bit of Russian food. And so they couldn't collect eggs because (laughs) some didn't have any. That was an extreme luxury. But they did have a little bit of a um, collection, what they called a penny collection. I, I may not have the term exactly right. And they used those pennies for events like Christmas so that the children could have some little gifts and so forth.
2: I appreciate you sharing that, especially amid all of the difficulties that are almost unbelievable
0: to us. It was a tough time. Yes.
1: Talking of these difficulties, obviously Paul is away fighting and involved in the army. What kind of contact did Paul have with the church during his military service?
0: Well, essentially there was no contact with church leaders. The contact that he could have was maybe through letters to Julius von Bauer who had replaced him as branch president. But I'm not aware that he had contact with President Valentine or his successor, President Cannon after 1916. And so I imagine those letters home and the
1: occasional tracts that he received were probably the limit of that gospel instruction that he was receiving from others. Do we know if he was ever able to meet any other Latter-day Saints while in the army or was he isolated throughout the conflict?
0: No, he was able to write letters. He distributed pamphlets consistently, the pamphlets that Helena sent him, Also, there was contact through President Valentine by sending a free copy of Der Staun, the German church magazine, to all the LDS soldiers in the war. And uh, later, when a new edition of the Latter-day Saint Hymns came out, President Valentine also saw to it that these hymn books were sent to the soldiers for free.
2: Yeah.
1: I know that they did the same thing in the British Isles. I have no ancestors that were Latter-day Saints that that I know of, and my grandfather, great-grandparents, were involved in the First World War. But a few years ago, I remember looking at the listed possessions of Latter-day Saint soldiers who died in the war, so identifying the British Saints and seeing what they had on them when they died. And it was interesting to see how many of them had the lectures on faith or a hymnal or other scriptures that they took with them onto the front, because they were often one of not very many out of the thousands of soldiers. And I think these hymnals, the stars, whether it's the Dischstern or the Millennial Star, these were probably a saving grace for for some of these soldiers, probably help them to keep the fire of their faith going in the midst of all of these
0: horrors.
2: Well, Edgar, can you help us understand a little bit more about the Barman branch and what happened to that particular branch?
0: Yes. I mentioned earlier that when my grandfather was called into the war, that Julius von Bauer replaced him as branch president. and also how the sisters were called to various positions in the Sunday School and Relief Society, of course, and and so forth. And I mentioned that for a short while, Helena was also asked by either President Valentine or Cannon to function as a branch president under the preset direction of Julius von Bauer. The branch held up well. From what I could read from my parents' journal and so forth, There was, on the whole, a great spirit. Already from the beginning, there was not quite the war euphoria that you saw in Germany and perhaps in some of the German branches. Part of it was because, on the whole, most of the members, the, the men and women, were married. They were a little older, and there were also a whole generation of older converts which naturally tempered their feelings a little bit about uh, the war. When the war ended, my grandfather returned unscathed after having fought in Verdun and some of the other terrible killing fields of that war. And he served again uh, very briefly as a branch president. And when the missionaries returned, he was ultimately a first counselor in the branch or the branch president. Around 1921, 1922, the Bauman branch was divided into the Aberfeldt and Bauman branch, and there seemed to have been sufficient members and mainly investigators of the church to be able to do that. And so my grandfather then continued alternately as a councillor or a president until he was called as a district president. I believe it was the Cologne district that would have been just after the 1930s.
1: Thank you very much for that, Edgar. Now, we read in the chapter how Paul has several near misses and I think there can sometimes be a tendency for us to see the hand of the Lord protecting us when others who are perhaps equally as worthy or believing can still be seriously hurt or killed. This is a tricky question because many of us want to and we can see the hand of the Lord, but then we can't close our eyes necessarily to the fact that bad things still happen. But as Latter-day Saints, how do we deal with this issue?
0: Well, you're correct. It is a very difficult issue. But the marvelous thing about the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is that it gives us a larger perspective. We are taught in the gospel that there will be opposition in all things, that there is an eternal progression, that it is because of opposition that we grow. But of course, the decision is always in the hands of the agency of that person. Some become very strong because of tragedy, death, or suffering because of the war and at other times, whereas others turn bitter. And so, the possibility to have it become a positive experience is there because of those principles in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Can we explain everything as to why somebody was killed and and somebody else wasn't, outside of perhaps some personal Choices We really can't, but we do know that growth and faith and spiritual power can come to us because of opposition. In fact, how could words like suffering or love or illness even be formed if there wasn't such a thing?
2: Well, Edgar, your insights are so fascinating, and it reminded me of a very specific scripture in Alma, just some of those words that you used where the Nephites and the Lamanites are, of course, fighting. And it says, because of the exceedingly great length of the war, many had become hardened and many were softened because of their afflictions. And so it's just interesting that that's a theme that kind of is the same regardless of the time and regardless of the age. So we appreciate you sharing those insights, and I just thought that was such an interesting connection. Well, Edgar, Paul has such an incredible, eventful life that we read about in Saints, and very difficult life as well. Unfortunately, we aren't able to return to Paul later in this volume, but we would love to hear from you. What does he go on to do in his life, and how does his story end?
0: Yes. When my grandfather was serving as branch president around 1934, His wife, Helena, passed away of leukemia. It was a four-year long struggle. Four years later, in 1938, he married Victoria Fittinghoff. In 1943, I think it was the 29th to 30th of May, 1943, Barman was destroyed by a bombing raid. It also destroyed the home of my parents and my grandparents and other members of the branch, which meant they were homeless and were evacuated to Thuringia in the eastern part of Germany, where in 1945, according to the Potsdam Agreements, the Americans relinquished the area to the Russians. My grandfather and Victoria were able to leave before that and briefly settled in a city called Coburg where he became branch president for a short time before immigrating to Salt Lake City in 1948. Several of his children had immigrated during the 1920s, and so he lived with one of his sons in Salt Lake City. A year later, Victoria followed him. He remained a faithful Latter-day Saint all his life. He never really learned English, but he never missed a home teaching appointment, I think they may have called it ward teaching in those days, while he lived and while he was able to go out. He passed away in 1967, faithful member of the church. One of the wonderful memories that I have of my grandfather, Paul Schwartz, is him giving me a blessing before going on my mission to the Netherlands in 1963 which I believe helped me in some difficult situations in that mission. As you recall, the Nazis had occupied the Netherlands for several years, and the hatred from the Dutch to the Germans was tremendous. I knew that because I was dating a Dutch girl, (laughs) my wife Jane, in Salt Lake City, and her father never talked to me. And so it was a difficult time and it was wonderful to be able to fall back on that blessing that my grandfather gave me.
2: That is so neat. What an incredible connection. Yeah.
1: Edgar, do you have any final things that you really want to say
0: about this story? I am just so grateful that my grandfather listened to the missionaries, gained a testimony and joined the church And the same with my grandmother, uh, Helena, who joined the church two years earlier in Eberfeld. She was one of the very first members in that town. And the legacy that they left with us, it's a lot to live up to. And hopefully I pass that legacy on effectively to my children.
2: I'm sure you have. We really appreciate you coming on today, Edgar, and sharing this family legacy. I've loved learning about it.
1: Well, today we've had the opportunity to speak to Edgar to cover just a small portion of what this chapter covers. And for those of you who are interested in some of our other stories in this chapter, you can have a look at some of the associated church history and gospel topics, which you can find on things such as the growth of missionary work and World War One. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.